There's no doubt that God has a plan for each one of us. We've been talking about that. It's a mission, really, a, a journey that he invites us to go on with him. It's, it's a narrow path full of challenges and struggles. Uh, it's wrought with risk and, and reward, hardship and fulfillment. Plenty of uncertainty, isn't it? An ultimate victory. It's a journey that will require every bit of commitment and courage and resolve that we can muster. And it is the greatest adventure that we could ever hope to find in this lifetime. Being a Christian is so much more than what the current church culture has often limited it to. You know, a nice life, uh, a secure future, church membership. Those are all good things, indeed. But the true essence of being a Christian is completely wrapped up in how we identify ourselves with Christ. If you want to know what it means to be a true Christian, of course, we simply need to look at Christ himself, his life. He completely devoted his life and in the end gave it up for the church, the body of believers, his bride, you and me. And if we're going to follow Christ, it means the same for us. Living our lives devoted to him and to one another. That will require much of us as we continue on this journey, including a lot of faith. Believing. If we don't believe that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he said he will do, at best we're playing a guessing game, aren't we? But when we go all in, when we're believing in his word and we heed his voice in our lives, then everything that seems impossible becomes possible. In fact, Jesus said all things are possible for one who believes. Mark 9.23 There are no limits to what we can accomplish for Christ when we believe and follow him. That's the journey that we've been exploring together, and that's what we're going to continue to look at today. And as most of you know, as you've been here, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus and Moses' life as a parallel to our own journey with Christ. And so today we're going to continue this story where we left off last time. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Exodus chapter 13. And in just a moment, we'll start reading on verse 17. So Exodus 13, 17. And just to set the stage here, previously in chapter 12, we see God giving Moses very specific instructions about the Passover. And then later in the same chapter, God institutes the ceremonial Passover meal for the Jews to commemorate what he'd just done by delivering the people out of Egypt. All right? And I just want to point out here that the intention of the Passover meal was not only to commemorate or remember what God had already done. It was also a reminder to be prepared for what God was going to do in the lives of his people. In regard to the Passover in chapter 12, verse 11, God said to Moses and Aaron, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. In other words, be prepared You're my people, and I'm about to do something great with you. It's the same thing with communion today. God instituted the Passover meal before the Passover occurred. So the first Passover meal happened before the actual Passover event, right? Jesus instituted the first Lord's Supper, the communion meal, before the crucifixion actually occurred. So the Passover originally looked forward to what God was about to do, and the Lord's Supper looked forward to what Jesus was about to do. So when we take communion today, 
It isn't just about remembering what he did for us in the past, although that's certainly a part of it. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, Luke twenty-two nineteen. 19. But it's also very much about recognizing who we are as Christians today, as we identify ourselves with the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body for us. And it, it should be a reminder to all of us of what we're called to do ongoing for his name's sake. Right? We're called to sacrifice ourselves, to give our lives to one another, to live for one another just as he did for us. It's important that we understand this. God is always pointing us to the future, even as we look back to what he wants us to do next, even as he's commanding us to remember what he's already done for us in the past. The, the entire Old Testament points to Christ in the future. Everything that Jesus did prepared his followers for his future departure and then the coming of the Holy Spirit and ultimately the ministry that he assigned for each one of us. It's never just about remembering. That's part of what we are to do. But he also wants us to always be prepared for what he's about to do. Belt fastened, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand, always ready and communion like the Passover should be a reminder of who we are and who we belong to and the implications of that for our future, not only for our past, okay? So here we are. God has now instituted the Passover. We'll pick up on our story in chapter 13, verse 17. And that was just a little aside for you as we're going to have communion today. Verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. This is a fascinating passage. God has equipped the people for battle. And yet he leads them away from Philistia. Even though that was the more direct route. Because he knew they would abandon his plan for them if they encountered trouble with the Philistians or more likely with the Egyptians. Because at that time the Egyptians heavily guarded the road to Philistia. Okay? So it was probably the Egyptians he was leading them away from. But God leads them away from conflict even though they were equipped for it. At first glance that seems a bit strange to me. Why, why equip them if you're going to take them away from the battle? You probably know by now that I am a firm believer in the sovereignty of God. In fact, I've been reading through the entire Bible in my personal devotional time over the past few months, and I'm recording every time that Scripture, either directly or indirectly, addresses the sovereignty of God, and also recording every time that it directly or indirectly addresses free will, which sometimes people view as opposing doctrines. I'm doing this because there are a lot of Christians that I've met who don't believe that God is sovereign or that he's ultimately in control. Like this world is just sort of running amok, which it, it is certainly at times, and he has nothing to do about it. But I'd like to be able to speak to this issue with some authority, having researched it for myself. So that's why I'm doing that. So to date, I'm about two-thirds of the way through this little project of mine, through Scripture, and the volume of Scripture that supports the ultimate sovereignty of God is overwhelming. There's absolutely no question in my mind that God is sovereign. And although there isn't nearly the sheer volume of Scripture to support the idea or doctrine of free will, there are many passages that do support that idea, I believe. And I believe that we do have free will as well. 
a couple of Sundays ago, we talked about this idea that the two doctrines of sovereignty and free will can actually coexist quite well. So I'm not going to go into all of that again. But to say that this passage is one of those that supports both these ideas. Okay, God is sovereign over our lives and over this earth, and we also have free will to make our own choices and decisions as we go on this journey. All right? God himself is aware that the people of Israel will choose to run back to Egypt if they encounter a battle at this point. In fact, he points out in this passage their ability, their free will to make the choice. He says, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. They have free will to choose. If they didn't, he could have just led them straight to Philistia and had them defeat any enemy that they may have encountered. But in his sovereignty and mercy, in his plan, knowing the choice they'd make, he leads them away from a potential battle and he spares them from having to make the decision. And ultimately, he spares them from a fight that he knew they weren't ready for at the time. And yet, in the process of doing that, he's leading them directly into a confrontation with the Egyptians at the Red Sea. It's a very interesting turn of events. So what's the difference in the end between these two routes, these two choices? Either way, they're headed directly toward trouble. So why one way over the other? Well, it's the difference between God fighting through us and God fighting for us. And we'll see that as we go. You see, there are times when God fights through us. We certainly see it. Uh, we see him fighting through the Israelites in the Old Testament. There are many occasions where the people of God suit up for battle and they go to war with other nations and God fights through them. And yet there are other times, this being one of them, where God chooses to fight for his people. They don't, they don't have to lift a sword or shoot one arrow. He fights the battle for them. There's a great lesson here for us, and we shouldn't miss it. There are times in our lives when God tells us to suit up, get ready for battle, so we can directly confront the enemy in our lives. There are times when the only option for victory over what is coming against us is direct confrontation, and we're, we're being led, when we're being led by the Spirit of God, in those instances, He will fight through us. He gives us wisdom to know where to go, the words to know what to say, the courage to make the right choices, and the strength to see it through. But listen, there are other times when even though we're equipped for the battle and we feel ready for the fight, that in his wisdom and sovereignty, he knows that it's not the right time for us to confront that enemy. And in those times, he often will lead us away from the conflict or tell us to hold tight while he fights the battle for us. It's really important that we get this and learn to listen to his voice and seek his will anytime there's a potential battle or, or big confrontation in our lives because when we act on our own accord without consulting him first, we may be walking into a conflict that although we have all the right tools, all the right weapons for, we still may not be ready to handle that fight. God knows that. And he will protect us from anything that we're not ready to confront, but we have to be attentive to his direction and his leading at all times. Is it really God that's leading me into this confrontation? Is he going to fight through me? 
Or is he leading me away from that confrontation so that he can fight for me? We need to ask those questions. When I was a teenager, we were in a, a youth group in, in North Carolina. And we decided one night for our service we were going to go street witnessing on a university campus. And so we had all these kids. We were middle school kids and, and some senior high kids. And we'd all been in church. We knew some scripture, of course. We all had lots of passion. But we were confronting some of these university students on a Friday night while they were out drinking and hanging out in the street. Some of these, these kids were grad students in secular philosophy. We were equipped to an extent, but we were not ready for that spiritual battle. It was brutal. <laughs> it was ugly. Because it wasn't time for God to fight that spiritual battle through us. And that was an instance, in my opinion, when we would have been much more effective had we gone to that campus and found a quiet place to gather and prayed for those college students. Okay? And then let God handle the battle. You see what I'm saying? Without question, sometimes God sends us directly to the front lines to fight through us. David went straight and met Goliath head on. Without question. And sometimes he leads us, as we see here, away from the battle to fight for us. We need to be able to know that we're following his leading anytime we're about to confront any spiritual forces of darkness in this world, okay? That means a lot of prayer and usually fasting before we make a move, all right? Let's continue. Verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. This was done, of course, to carry out Joseph's last wishes, but also, and probably even more so, it was done to reaffirm for Israel that God was going to keep his promises that he'd made long before this event which was very important for the Hebrews to witness as they're embarking on this great exodus, right? God is showing himself faithful. There's significance and meaning to everything that God does in our lives, everything that he tells us to do, okay? Verse 20. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Again, this is to fulfill the promise to Moses from God at the burning bush that I will be with you all along our journey. No matter how difficult life becomes, regardless of where we are or the, the circumstances that we face, God promises to be with us, his people, every step of the way. As we follow him, whether a cloud by day to protect us and lead us, to encircle us in times of trouble or simply bring comfort, or, or it's a pillar of fire by night that illuminates the way when the way seems dark, a fire that gives light and warmth and confidence in his strength and power, God is always with us. And in all of this, from the plagues up to this moment, God is faithfully guiding and protecting his people in preparation for their greatest test yet. A test that will require Moses to completely put his faith and trust in God if he's going to get through this trial. He's going to have to believe all that God has said to him, okay? 
This is where remembering what God has done for us in the past comes into play. Sometimes we face trials and adversity in life and we can't see anything but the obstacles that are in front of us. In those times, we need to remember all that God has done for us, how he's proven himself faithful time after time and led us through storms in life and even fought for us when we couldn't, okay? It's really important as we look ahead toward the opposite bank on the river where God is leading us and yet we can't see any way to get there that we take a moment to remember what he's already led us through and allow those testimonies of the past to strengthen your resolve and renew your faith for the future. God always makes a way where there seems to be no way. On this journey of following Christ, you can believe for the impossible. Remember, Jesus said, all things are possible for one, what, who believes, okay? Let's read chapter 14, starting on verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihakaroth, which means region of the salt marshes, between Migdol, which was the watchtower, and the sea in front of Baal-Saphon. Baal-Saphon was a temple of a, a Canaanite god, Okay? These were specific name places and landmarks. The people knew exactly where this was, where he was talking about. And the phrase turn back in verse 2 is key to understanding the strategy, the tactics that God was using to cause Pharaoh to think that the Israelites were lost. See, God has Moses leading the people around toward Canaan, but not, not by the most direct route toward Philistia. And then he has them turn back or backtrack to this location by the Red Sea, or literally the Sea of Reeds, and so it appears to Pharaoh who's tracking them that they're confused, right? That they're lost and just wandering around, which gives him even more confidence to go after them. All right, verse 3. For Pharaoh will say of all the people of Israel, they're wandering in a land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihakaroth in front of Baal-Saphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us up out of Egypt? Is it not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Again, God's fighting for his people instead of through them. All they have to do is be quiet 
and watch God work. You see, when we allow ourselves to believe, to accept that God will actually do what he said he would do in our lives, he will revive the dreams that he's put inside of you. The dreams that we've allowed to fade or even die because we've stopped believing. Okay, the Israelites, after so many years of slavery, oppression, being beat down, ruled over, living in, in captivity, they'd let the, the dream, the promise of living in the promised land and all that went along with that, they let that die. And when Moses first went back to Egypt and told the Israelites all that, uh, that God said he was going to do, as soon as they believed, they began to allow their dreams to be revived. If we look back at chapter 4, verses 29 through 31, then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. What happens right after they believe? It says, And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. There's a worship renewal, a revival among the people. Their spirits are lifted. Their dreams are coming back to life. And they're praising God for what he's about to do because they're beginning to believe once again. When we believe in his promises, those dreams that he's put in us, they come to life again and they begin to affect the choices that you make. It affect, they affect your relationship, your relationship with him. Your, your strength is renewed. Your worship will be richer and deeper. As your focus turns from plight to promise. Okay, and that's what was beginning to happen with the Hebrew people here. Their dreams were being revived. When I finally allowed myself to, to believe that God could still fulfill the promise of full-time ministry in my own life, that was something I'd longed for since I was a little kid. I was almost 40 years old. That was four years ago. I had come to the place in my life where after so many years of sort of deferred hope, I kept thinking that someday I'd, you know, pursue my dreams. Once I reached a certain a place financially or once my kids were grown, at some point I'd get around to pursuing the calling in my life. But for now, I'd just keep plugging away at what I was doing because it was measured and it was fairly predictable and somewhat safe. And I had one foot in the ministry and one foot in the business world. Pursuing full-time ministry would mean leaving all of that behind and walking into this great unknown at 40 years old with a wife and three kids. It didn't seem to me to be the prudent thing to do. Turns out it wasn't the prudent thing to do <laughs> at all. It was actually almost ridiculous from a worldly perspective. And so year after year, this dream became more of a nice thought. And eventually, it faded away almost completely. And one day I found myself really feeling somewhat empty. I had a great relationship with my wife and kids. I always have. I was serving in ministry part-time, and materially, I was set. And by the way, it wasn't about personal happiness. We talk a lot about that today in society. It's much more than that. Happiness comes and goes like weather patterns. Happiness is a fickle friend. It comes and goes. It's rarely a good idea to base major decisions in life on personal happiness, okay? Although that's quite common in our day. And you can see, by the way, what it's done in our marriages and in our families and society in general. Happiness is usually a byproduct of our circumstances and it can be an indicator of emotional health at times which can stem from lots of things. But I was dealing with something bigger than my personal happiness, all right? I was sensing an emptiness that was tied to an unfulfilled yearning to answer this call of God on my life, to be a part of something much bigger than what makes me personally happy. 
And because of the choices I'd made to pursue other things, I had no one to blame but myself, but I had reached a point of desperation. And I knew that the only way that I would ever be truly fulfilled in my life would be to pursue that calling in spite of the sacrifice that it was going to require. And so I was praying about all of this one evening at home. And I very, very vividly remember a moment when I began to believe that God was perfectly able and in fact wanted to lead me into that calling which for me meant full-time pastoral ministry. And I remember that at that very moment that I allowed myself to believe that he could and that he, that he would, at that moment I felt that dream that I had suppressed for so long begin to come alive in me again. Okay? That's exactly what he wants to do for some of you today. That's what he was doing in the lives of the Hebrew people in Egypt. Okay, let's get back to the story. The Israelites, who'd begun to allow themselves to believe again were now faltering because the obstacles to fulfilling those dreams seemed too great. Here they are, pinned between the Red Sea, which might as well be an ocean at this point, and the most powerful military for force in the world at that time. The obstacles were insurmountable. Escape was impossible. And yet, when we allow ourselves to believe, we'll find that he will remove the obstacles. Okay, let's read verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Can you imagine God telling you to do that? <laughs> and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night with one, without come, one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. By faith, because he believed that God would do what he promised he would do, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and God removed the obstacle. Sometimes we, we know that we need to be on the other side of the sea from where we currently are, but we can't envision any way across. What we often miss in our fretting is that God sees it plainly, and he's inviting you to believe that he's already made a way for you to cross the river, to cross the sea, to cross your situation. But instead, sometimes we run up and down the bank in panic, or worse, we, we turn around and we run back to what we think is security because it's, it's a known quantity, even though it isn't God's will or his best for us. Sometimes all we see is the obstacle instead of believing for the pathway through it. Once the job in Alaska was offered to us, a position in full-time pastoral ministry, the reality of what had to happen for us to actually get there became very, very real very quickly over the years of marriage and, and family and career up to that point, we'd accumulated a lot of stuff. A lot of you know what I mean. 
This was expensive stuff, and it all had to go if we were going to be able to make this move. And there was a time constraint associated with moving. They gave us a hard deadline because it was summertime. And we had to get everything sold by fall or earlier because moving to Alaska in the middle of winter isn't the same as moving to South Carolina in the middle of winter. We had to sell cars and trucks and motorcycles and heavy equipment and RV, at least one house, tons of smaller items. We were in the beginning of, of a recession at that time. Nobody was buying anything. And these were very expensive, sort of high ticket items. There were days when Mary Beth and I looked at each other and said, how is this going to happen? There were times when the only thing that I could see were the obstacles. Getting all of this sold, everything else stored or packed up, and getting moved 5,000 miles in a couple of months' time seemed impossible. But we allowed ourselves to believe in that God had brought us that far, and he wasn't going to abandon us now. And so we exercised much faith. We shut down the business that we owned, letting employees leave to pursue other work, selling equipment and vehicles that we needed to run the business with no assurance that we'd actually be able to get everything in place to make this move. And yet this is all stuff that we needed if we were going to ramp the business back up. We had to exercise a lot of faith. We had to believe that God was going to make good on his promise. Okay? And as sure as I'm standing here, everything sold. We didn't get what we wanted for everything. There was lots of sacrifice involved there too, but everything that had to go sold in time. All of the obstacles were removed right before our eyes, and a few weeks later, we were standing in our new home, a two-bedroom, one-bath apartment inside the church building where we would be working in Fairbanks, Alaska. Talk about taking your, your work home with you. We never left work. If God has given you a dream, he will always equip you for the journey. That still may require a lot of sacrifice on your part. You may have to give up some things. We had to give up some things, a standard of living, our family, friends, comfort. We had to walk away from a lot of things. And I'm going to tell you, that was not easy for us at all. But he'll equip you for that. And he'll provide the way for you to get there, even when it means removing these seemingly impossible obstacles between you in that dream. Okay, so we choose to believe. Our dreams begin to come alive in us once again, and we watch as God begins to remove these obstacles that stand between us in the realization of those dreams, these promises that he's given us. But there's one pesky little problem that's been following us the whole time. And it's still there, even, even after you've made it to the opposite shore where you know you're supposed to be. It's the enemy. The enemy is still hot on your trail. He's, he's dogging you, still chasing you with all those doubts, all those fears, the insecurities that you can't seem to get away from. Here's what we need to understand from this story today. When we allow ourselves to believe that God will see us all the way through this journey, and that he will never leave us, he'll never forsake us, when we allow him to fight for us and at times through us, he will defeat the enemy in your life. Okay, let's finish the text for today. Starting on verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic. 
clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, he believed, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. God defeated the enemy that pursued his people. When we finally made it to Fairbanks, I struggled within myself for several months in the beginning because I was sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop, for something to blow up in my face because it seemed too good to be true. I was in full-time ministry, finally, in a church that I loved. But I'd been under a lot of pressure, a lot of stress for a lot of years, doing something that I really wasn't called to do. And so I kept thinking... Something bad has to happen at some point. And I was a bit debilitated by that for a while. There was a nagging voice that made me fearful that the dream would turn into a big nightmare. But as I began to settle myself, seek God and just be quiet before Him, He began to dispel all of those fears, all that discouragement, all that pressure, all of the fret, He defeated those enemies in my life. And I began to function in the center of his will and seeing these dreams fulfilled in my life that I'd held at bay for so long because I didn't believe. I thought I was too old. You know, it was too late. I missed my opportunity. But God defeated my enemies. And he ultimately brought me into my promised land. Right here. My dreams come true. Planting and pastoring. A new church with my wife and my kids and and the rest of my family. That's all of you, by the way. This is my dream. You see, just as Moses told the people in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you, you have only to be silent. I just had to settle myself before God and let him fight for me in those battles. That's something I couldn't do. He had to take care of that allowing him to defeat my enemies, okay? And I love the ending of this portion of the story. Verse 30, Thus uh, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Their enemies were gone, wiped out. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And they believed... You see, God took what was impossible and he made it happen. And the people believed. When you believe for the impossible in your own life, according to his will for you, you will witness God doing amazing things, wonderful things, seemingly impossible things. But it starts with believing that he can and he will. If you'll open yourself up. If you'll just open yourself up to the God possibilities in your life, he will take you places beyond what you can even imagine. Why? Because all things are possible for one who believes. Let's pray.